Well, take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. And as I mentioned last week, I had a chance a couple weeks ago to go sit under one of my heroes, Dr. Kent Hughes, who was teaching a winterim class at the Master's Seminary and uh, was talking about, supposed to be talking about 2 Corinthians, <laughs> spend more time talking about expository preaching and why we preach expositionally. And it just uh, fanned the flame in my own heart towards the authority and the sufficiency and the potency of God's Word. And so I've just been meditating a lot on some old passages that I've held dear to my own heart, my own theology, my own philosophy of ministry, and are so important to everything that we do here at our church. And uh, last week we looked at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, which is the classic text in the Bible on the inerrancy and infallibility and sufficiency of God's Word. Well, if that's the case, then here are Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13, is a classic text on the potency of God's Word. And I believe this is the most direct statement in the entire Bible on the power of God's Word. And I'd like to look at that with you this morning. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Father, we come before You knowing that we stand exposed this morning in your presence, that everything in our life is laid bare before your omniscience. And we submit ourselves this morning to your piercing word that you may have your way with us by the power of your spirit through his sword, the Bible. And I pray that you would show us how this passage applies, Lord, not intellectually, but show us that experientially this morning as we sit under the teaching of your word, as we hear you speak to us, Lord, may we sense your power working in our lives to convict us, to comfort us, to correct us, and to conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Throughout the Word of God, there are examples after examples illustrating its power. And one of my favorites is found in Jeremiah. And I'd like you to turn back there just by way of introduction this morning. Jeremiah chapter 1 and Jeremiah, the prophet of God, has been an inspiration for me, especially as a young man in ministry, because Jeremiah is quick to admit how inadequate he feels to be 
doing what God has called him to do, and that is to be his mouthpiece. And in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 6, he reasons with God. He says, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I'm a youth. I'm just a kid. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And then the Lord stretched out His hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, watch this, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Talk about a comfort to a young man in the ministry saying, Lord, I, I, I'm just a kid. I, I don't know what to say. He says, relax. It's not about you anyway because I'm going to put my words in your mouth and your job is to get up there and not mess it up. Turn over to Jeremiah 5, verse 14. And we see how this theme of God's words in Jeremiah's mouth continued throughout his life and ministry. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 14 Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth fire, and this people would, and it will consume them. So again, another encouragement to Jeremiah, because you speak my word and my word alone, he said, I'm going to make my words in your mouth like fire. I'm going to make those people like wood. It's going to be like a blowtorch on balsam wood. <laughs> Because you speak my word and not your own. Well, as you know, Jeremiah didn't have a very positive ministry, didn't get a whole lot of response from his preaching. Uh, in fact, the people rebelled against him and persecuted him and uh, railed against him for speaking the word of God to them. And so in Jeremiah chapter 20, he said, uh, verse 9, he was dealing with that discouragement of being rejected and his sermons basically going in one ear and out the other and people blowing off what he had to say. He said in verse 9, but if I say I'll not remember him or speak any more in his name, in other words, if I think about it, my, my natural inclination is, well, that's it, I quit. I'm not saying anything more for you, God, because it's not working. If I would do that, he said, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones and I'm weary of holding it and I cannot endure it. In other words, even if I wanted to stop preaching, I couldn't because the word of God is like a fire in my heart. And then over in chapter 23, verse 29, kind of the big crescendo, if you will, of this theme Again, God reminding Jeremiah in the midst of a, not a very responsive audience to his ministry, Jeremiah 23, verse 29, he says, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? A hammer that, like, like a jackhammer that, that comes along and, 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 and breaks up the rock hard, cement hard hearts of its hearers? That's power in the Word of God. And so God likens His Word to a fire. He likens it to a hammer. And in the verses that we have before us in Hebrews chapter 4, He likens His Word to a sword. Now, 
before we get into verses 12 and 13, you know, if we're going to be good Bible students, we've got to set the context, right? Well, the book of Hebrews was addressed to some Jews who were wavering in their faith in Jesus Christ. They had been exposed to the gospel. Some had even repented and embraced the gospel by faith. They were being tempted, however, to fall back into their old religious system of Judaism. And so the writer of Hebrews was exhorting them and encouraging them not to allow their hearts to become hardened toward God and His Word. And because they were Jews, the best place to go for illustrations for anything was the Old Testament. And so he drew a quote from Psalm 95 here in the early part of chapter 3. Uh, which is a story about when the account of when the Israelites failed to enter the promised land because they had disregarded and disobeyed God's word. And as a result of their hard hearts, they ended up wandering around the wilderness until they died. Remember that? And that's what he's saying here in, in verse 7. This is Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. He says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness. When they didn't enter their rest. Verse 11. And then in verse 12, he says, Take care, brethren, lest there be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. He says, Encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So he's saying, Hey, some of you are being tempted right now to, to have your hearts hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and to, to spurn the Word of God and, and to, to harden your hearts against the Word of God and not respond and listen to the Word of God or obey the Word of God. And then he talks about that some more and, and repeats Psalm 95 several times uh, in chapter 4. Particularly in verse 7, you see again, he says, Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. That's really the theme of Psalm 95, the kind of the hinge on which the whole psalm turns. Uh, Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. In other words, they were hearing the Word of God through His writing, through this letter, and he says, don't harden your hearts against it. Don't block me out. Listen to what it says and respond. Verse 11, he says, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. Those Israelites who, who, who didn't want to hear the word of God, and they, they spurned the word of God, and they ended up wandering around the wilderness, and they never made it to the promised land. So in order to motivate these Hebrews not to be like their ancestors who had disregarded and disobeyed God's word, the writer of Hebrews offered them here in verses 12 and 13 two compelling reasons why they must not blow off God's word. And they're the same two reasons that should compel us, all of us, to heed God's word. To listen to what he says and to do what he says. Because all of us, at times, are tempted to blow off what God has said in His Word, aren't we? Am I the only one who's tempted to blow off God's Word at times? And that's, in essence, what we do every time we sin. We, we blew off God's Word. We hardened our heart. We allowed our hearts to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, and our hearts got hard specifically toward God's Word. Because God's Word said to do this or not do this, and we didn't do it. Or we did do it anyway. See, what are these two reasons why we must obey God's Word? Well, simply because of what it is, because of what God's Word is, and because of whose it is. 
Did you catch that? It's because of what it is and because of whose it is. It is the living word of the living Lord. That's what it is. So if you're taking notes this morning, you can have two points. The first one is the living Lord, which I've subtitled the divine scalpel, or excuse me, the, the, the living word, and I've subtitled that the divine scalpel. The divine scalpel. Verse 12, he says, For the word of God is living and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intention of the heart. So that first word for tells us that this is a reason, a because statement, a purpose clause. This is, this is why you need to not follow their example and not harden your hearts against God's word. Why? Because the word of God is living and active. The word of God there is talking about the written word of God, the holy scriptures. Whether it's read, whether it's spoken, whether it's preached, whether it's being meditated upon. That's what he's talking about. And this verse says three things about God's word. Number one, it's dynamic. It's dynamic. Look what it says. For the word of God is living and what? Active. It's living and it's active. That word living there describes the dynamic quality of the word of God. It's not just a collection of outdated, irrelevant stories from a bunch of old dead guys. While it's written in times and cultures that are far removed from us, these ancient words are alive today as the moment they were inspired. What you have sitting on your lap is alive. It's alive. Watch out. It's alive. Do you believe that? It's alive. It's not just leather and, and, and paper and ink. I love what... Uh, Moses said back in Deuteronomy chapter 32 when he was reiterating the law to the nation of Israel before they went into the promised land. And in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 47, he says, he's, after he's given the law, this is kind of the end, wrapping the thing up, he said, for it is not an idle word for you. This is not a waste of time. I didn't just waste your time for 31 chapters. This is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your, what? Life. This is your life. This is what your, your entire life needs to be based on, is what I just got done telling you. In Acts 7, 38, Stephen, when he's giving this great sermon before he's martyred, talks about the living oracles that were given to Moses. They weren't just some writing on some slate tablets, the Ten Commandments, the law. They were living oracles. They were alive as alive then as they were back on the Mount Sinai and they are as alive today as they were back in the apostles' time. 1 Peter chapter 1. Closer there, you might want to turn there a couple pages to the right. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, excuse me, verse 23. It says, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the what? The living and abiding word of God. He says, for all flesh is like grass and all of its glory like the flowers of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You know what that's talking about? That's talking about the eternality of the word. And that's why the word is alive. That thing you have in your lap is alive because it's, and it will forever be alive because it's the word of God. It's eternal. 
And so the Word of God gives us life. We call that regeneration. We see that in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing what? The Word of Christ. So we can't have faith in what we don't know, so we need to hear the Word of God, and God grants us faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 talks about how God chose the foolishness of preaching and the message preached to save people. God was well pleased with the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. We learned last week, 2 Timothy 3.15 talks about how the Holy Scriptures that or the sacred writings that Timothy learned from his mother and grandmother were able to give us the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And so, first of all, the Word of God gives us life, but secondly, it sustains our life. We call that sanctification. John 17, 17, Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them by thy truth. And then what did he say? Thy word is truth. How about Ephesians chapter 5? Passage that talks about husbands loving their wives, and there's a great theological truth there. It says, Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with what? With the word. And so it's the word that sanctifies our lives. In other words, God's word makes us alive and keeps us alive. That's a good reason to listen to it and not harden our hearts against it, right? The writer goes on, he says, the word of God is living and active. Energes in the Greek, which we get our English word what? Energy. That the word is energetic, it's effective, it's powerful, it's productive, it produces results, it's always working, producing changes in our lives, it's convicting us and it's confronting us and it's correcting us and it's comforting us and it's conforming us to the image of Christ. I love 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. I've preached on this before. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, 13, and for this reason we also constantly thank God that when you receive from us the word of God's message, Paul's saying you listen to me preach, you accepted it not as the word of men, not as my words, but what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So the word is always at work in our lives. That's why we try to expose ourselves to the Word of God in, in, in many possible ways, as, as many ways as possible during the week, whether it's our quiet time, whether it's Sunday's morning sermon, and equipping hours, small groups, women's Bible study, Iron Men, one-on-one discipleship. Man, the Word is central. Why? Because it's the Word that does the work. It's not me that somehow causes change in your lives. It's not your, the person sitting next to you that causes change in your life. It's not this church that causes change in your life. It's the Word that causes change in our lives. I love Isaiah 55. We'll get there in our small group study. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 10, it says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. You know, that is such an encouragement to me as a preacher that I know as long as I stick to the Word of God and I exposit the Word of God on a Sunday morning or in any context that I'm in, in a counseling session or whatever, in a personal conversation, if I use the Word of God, guess what? Something's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. 
But something's going to happen because God's word never returns void. Amen? So use the word. doesn't say that about your slick counsel or your tricky little illustration or your tear-jerking stories or your jokes. That's why I'm not up here usually telling a bunch of jokes and tear-jerking stories because that's not what's going to change you. The word is going to change you. And I'm not proud enough to think that something I could say could change someone's life. I don't have that power. But God's word has that power. And that's why we stick to the word. Martin Luther said this, quote, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. You ever felt that way about the Bible? Just kind of comes and tackles you, man, gets you down on the ground, starts giving you a noogie. A spiritual noogie. So first of all, the word is dynamic. Secondly, it's dissecting. It's dissecting. For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. That two-edged sword is the Greek, in the Greek, the makaira, which is a great Greek word. But it was that short sword. It was a little dagger that in the ancient world, this was the sharpest weapon that a soldier had in his arsenal. He might have the big broadsword that he would fight like this with, but when he really got down to it, hand-to-hand combat, he'd pull out his makaira. And that was a sharp little dagger where he could go to town. Ephesians 6, 17, it says, make sure you got your what? Sword of the Spirit, the armor of God, right? Our weapon, our offensive weapon is the sword of the Spirit. The Word of God, that's the makaira. And throughout God's Word, it describes itself as a sword, particularly coming out of the mouth of, of prophets or those who speak the word of God. Isaiah 49, uh, verse 2. It says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. He's made also made me a select arrow in my quiver. In other words, that's what God says. When a man of God gets up and preaches the word of God, he, he's, he's like a sword. He's like an arrow that just goes... That he can shoot into the heart of those who are listening. Hosea chapter 6, verse 5. Again, another prophecy. And the prophets had this down. They understood they were just simply mouthpieces. It wasn't about them. Hosea chapter 6, verse 5. It says, Therefore I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. Again, talking about, hey, the prophets were like a sword in my hand as I use them. Revelation chapter 2, probably more familiar with this passage when John saw the vision of Jesus Christ. John chapter 2, excuse me, uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. It says, The angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. I didn't read John 1.16. This is the vision. And in his right hand he yelled seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. He's talking about Jesus Christ. And you see that in chapter 2. You see it in chapter 19 when he comes back. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth. What is that talking about? It's talking about his word, the power of his word. So the writer of Hebrews says that, that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And piercing. In other words, it cuts through our hearts like a hot knife through butter. 
Think about Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. Remember what it said after he got, got done preaching? It said, oh, by the way, guys, you killed your Messiah. <laughs> and what happened? It says they were cut to the heart. They were pierced through because of Peter's sermon. And notice he says, it's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. In other words, it, divides the, it has the ability to divide the undividable. Can you divide up the soul and the spirit? I don't know. But the word can. His point is that they're so closely interwoven in the spiritual part of us, just like joints and marrow are interwoven in our physical bodies. You think you can separate the joints and the marrow? That, does that come easy? A little, little surgeon in there doing his deal? That's not easy because those things are intertwined. And I don't think that the writer here is trying to weigh in on the debate between dichotomy and trichotomy, which is a theological debate about whether a man is made up of two parts or three parts, body and soul or body, soul, spirit. I don't think that's the point at all. It's simply a poetic statement of the power of God's word to penetrate to the very depths of our human pers personality. And that word piercing doesn't sound like a, a feel-good word, does it? That sounds like a painful word, piercing. Amy Carmichael, who was uh, that great missionary saint to, to, um, to India, she said this, quote, if you've never been hurt by a word from God, it's probable that you've never heard God speak. It's good. Calvin said it this way, we must not be gently pricked or scratched. We must be deeply wounded by God's word. So God's word is dynamic, it's dissecting, and thirdly, it's discerning. Notice what it says. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That word, able to judge, kritikos in the Greek, sounds like what word? Critic, right? It's able to criticize our hearts and our thoughts. It's able to discern what's really going on in our minds. You know the word heart is, a word, is synonymous with the word mind in the Bible, right? Heart, mind, it's, it's, it's who we are. And it's able to judge between the thoughts and intentions. And, and its point is that our hearts and our minds are a tangled web of sinful thoughts and desires and feelings and emotions and, and motives. You look back at Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. It's always been this way. It's not like it just happened. In Genesis chapter 6, this is why the flood happened. Genesis 6, 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In other words, we were messed up. We were messed up. Our heart was an absolute mess. And God says, you know what? I'm going to judge him. I'm going to punish him. Jeremiah Chapter 17, verses 9 and 10 says, The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? You know what that means? It means our heart is so wicked and so deceitful, we don't even know what's going on in there. But there's someone who does. The next verse, verse 10, talks about how God searches the heart. He says, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. See, no one is able to know for sure what's really going on in their, in their heart. In fact, I, I can't 
know what's going on in your heart ultimately. You can't know what's going on in my heart ultimately. In fact, our, our, our hearts are so wicked, we, we can't even figure them out. And most of the time, we have a hard time discerning what our true desires, our true motives and intentions really are, don't we? And ultimately, it's only God who understands what is going on in our hearts, and He helps us see things the way they really are. And He's able to sort them all out by the searchlight of His Word. And God's Word is so powerful that it's able to penetrate the very core of our being. It reveals the deepest, darkest secrets of our hearts. It exposes what's hiding in every nook and cranny of our lives and our minds. And there's no part of our lives that doesn't come under the influence of the Word of God. It leaves no stone unturned, no cavern unexplored. God's Word has the power to impact every area of our lives. Pilgrim's Progress is a great book to read. And uh, there's so many great illustrations throughout that journey that Christian took with all of his companions from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And there was a guide uh, that guided Christian. His name was Greatheart. And he was guiding some of the pilgrims to the celestial city. And they came across a man with his sword drawn and with a bloody face. And his name was Valiant for Truth. And he told them how his way to the celestial city had been, uh, on his way to the celestial city, he had been attacked by these three thieves. And although he's outnumbered three to one, he had fought valiantly and, and, and for, for three hours until they all fled. And Greatheart was very impressed. He said, you have behaved worthily. Let me see your sword. And so he showed it to him. And when he had taken it in his hand, he looked there in a while. He said, ha, it's a right Jerusalem blade. And Valiant for Truth said, It is so. Let a man have one of these blades with a hand to wield it and skill to use it, and he may venture upon an angel with it. He need not fear its holding if he can but tell how to lay on. Its edges will never blunt. It will cut flesh and bones and soul and spirit and all. Bunyan knew his Bible, didn't he? It's a great illustration. So the first reason why we need to listen to the Word of God and honor the Word of God and obey the Word of God is because it's a living Word. It's a scalpel. And you know what? I don't have time for my second point. <laughs> Unless you just want to skip lunch, and we'll just, I'm just kidding. Well, there was so much more in my heart to share this morning but we're limiting our time. And so I tell you what, we're going to stop there and uh, we'll have to pick it up next week and look at the second verse. You thought that was a tough verse. Wait till we get to 13. It's even, it's, it's, it really shows us the power behind the power if there is such a thing. Let's pray. Lord God, it seems that I've just done such a weak job of communicating this incredibly profound verse. And I wish I had another hour, God, but you are sovereign in that. And I know that your word will not return void. And so I pray that the little that has gone out this morning would, would be enough and would pierce our hearts and change us, Lord. And if there's anyone here that doesn't know Christ, Lord, that they have just spurned your word 
and they have just rejected your word to the point their word, their heart is so hard right now sitting here. They were listening, but it was just going in one ear and out the other. God, I pray that you would soften their heart. May your word be to them today a rock, or excuse me, a hammer that just shatters their rock hard heart. And it may be like a fire that just consumes them that they would be willing to repent and turn away from their sin and trust Christ alone for their salvation. And Lord, I pray that the word would continue to have its way in all of our lives as we seek to honor it this week in our quiet times, in our Bible studies. Lord, as we have conversations with other believers, Father, as we seek to witness, I pray that the word would be supreme in our lives. It would be supreme in our minds. It would be supreme in our decisions. It would be supreme in our marriages in our schoolwork, in everything that we do in our jobs, Lord, that your word would control all of that so that you would be lifted up and exalted. In Jesus' name, amen.